John the baptizer was a striking figure. He was a snappy dresser with unusual lifestyle habits. His appearance and his interpersonal style drew a lot of attention both to his person and to his message. He dressed in an outfit of a camel hair cloak and he survived on locusts and wild honey. Quite a diet. I think I could lose a lot of weight on that diet. In his self-presentation, he stood out among the crowd and he was saying things that at least some people were interested in hearing, even though hearing his message had to be painful to those who had been lulled into a false sense of security by their complacency and their mediocrity. John used an in-your-face style of delivery. His descriptors of his audience were less than complimentary, phrases like, you brood of vipers. In spite of John's heavily confrontational style, he had listeners who were curious and receptive to his, to his message. John would become the last of the great prophets as he shouted out his warning to the people who would listen concerning repentance and water baptism. John cautioned his listeners that just because they were descendants of Abraham was not in any way sufficient to, be, to allow them to consider themselves as godly people because God could create descendants from the stones that were laying on the ground in front of them. God expected something more. So, what was the context of John's preaching? It would seem as if the conditions were like this. The people, or at least some of the people, practiced the prescribed religious rituals, but their practices were perfunctory, repetitive, and empty, devoid of any personal meaning to them. The rituals had become ends in themselves, pointing to nothing beyond themselves. They were dead ends. They did them because they always had done them, and they believed that doing them was the right thing to do, even though they carried little or no meaning for them. How many Christians today go through the motions of religious practices because they were taught that they were the right things to do? How many Christians today have become complacent in their faith? For that matter, how many have become outright negligent? John's message was to wake them up and get their attention, and wake them up he did. In a sense, John was like a co-regulating mother who is directing a child's attention to the most salient stimuli that the child should attend to. In my clinical work, I see a ton of people who never had a relationship with a co-regulating other. When they have to make a choice about what it's important to pay attention to, they make the wrong one. Interestingly, though, John was hugely successful not due to his own endeavors, I might add. Many of, list, of his listeners were convicted. They got it. Some people began to inquire, what should we do? As one might anticipate, John had a strategy to prescribe for them. 
He provided them with a moral foundational structure that they could use to make their way in the world. What should we do, they asked. John was not bashful at all about laying it all out for them. First, he told them, be compassionate to the poor. Share your clothes and food with those who don't have enough. Parenthetically, let me say that beginning in January, you'll have an opportunity to do just that through the Agape program that's now in Lynchburg. Their facility is located over on Carroll Avenue in the old Armstrong Electric Building near the DMV. We are a supporting parish and will provide volunteers to support their programs. Deacon Josh and Ray, who Ray is our ranking um, layperson as the senior warden, signed a, a um, commitment to that effect this week. So you'll be hearing more about that in the weeks ahead from both Deacon Josh and Ray, who will serve as our liaisons. The executive director is Tabitha North. She's terrific. I hope you'll get to know her. The people in John's day lived with the expectation that they would be saved by the promise of a political figure who would deliver them from the hands of their captors, that is, the Romans. They believed that it would be their ethnic affiliation that would be their salvation. John tells them to forget that. Ain't going to happen. Their place in the family tree is not going to do that. In fact, even as John is speaking, the axe is laying at the root of that tree. And any branch that's not bearing fruit will be pruned out and thrown into the fire. The essence of John's message is that people's passivity is no longer tolerable. Step up or step away. Your lineage is not your ticket to salvation. He got the attention of even tax collectors and soldiers who were looking for this repentance and reorganization of life that John was talking about. And they too asked for guidance. John told the tax collectors to collect only what they were owed. It was the reputation of tax collectors in that day that there was a little bit of graft and corruption in them whereby they would try to extract more money from taxpayers than what the tax actually was. And they pocketed the, dif the difference. John told him to cut it out. Soldiers also abused their power by exploiting people for their own gain. John directed them to stop it and to be content with their wages, what they were being paid. In addition, they were to stop making false accusations against people as a means of extorting money from them. That kind of behavior was unacceptable. John's listeners were trying to make sense out of John and his message. They recognized the power in what John was saying and doing, and they were curious about what it all meant. They even wondered whether John might actually be the promised Messiah, which became an opportunity for John to introduce Jesus to them. John proceeded to explain to them that he, John, was just the opening act. The performer for the main event would come later and he would be the real deal. 
John was merely preparing the way for him and was warming up the crowd. John told them that they hadn't seen anything yet. That he, John, was baptizing them with water. But in the main event, they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John exhorted them in many ways, according to St. Luke. And some of the people were like sponges. They just soaked it all up. The message was hot and timely. John's mission was a huge success, although, as you might imagine, he offended some people along the way. Some pretty powerful people who were less receptive to John's message of repentance. Their narcissism and self-centeredness blinded them to any need for repentance. Sound familiar? We have many of those people in our communities today. When John questioned their moral character and the choices that they were making, they were less open to looking at themselves than some of the more common folk. And they began to have fantasies of retaliation that they would later act on. It would seem as if Herod had some deviant sexual practices that John confronted. People who are in positions of power, even in our time, or perhaps one could say especially in our time, who also have a lot of narcissistic vulnerabilities, don't take well to people raising questions about what they're doing and the decisions they're making. St. Luke mentions one prominent offender by name. I'm not going to do that because you already know who many of them are. They prayed before us in the media on a regular basis. But I digress. John's task was to shake all that up, to make inroads into the mundane complacency that was gripping his time in history. John was an agitator and an antagonist. Imagine it. John showed up on the scene, not in towns, villages, or cities, but in the wilderness. The people had to seek John out. John wasn't hanging out in towns and villages. He wasn't doing his thing at the local pub. John was out in the wild, living out his ministry in the wilderness. When I asked the question, who was the first of the desert fathers, the immediate answer that comes to me is John. St. Anthony and the other Abbas and Amas, fathers and mothers, that would later inhabit the Egyptian desert, followed John's lead of seeking for God and finding him in the wilderness. It's interesting that Jesus, after his baptism, spent a protracted period of time in the desert. Perhaps because it's in the desert that faith is hammered out on the anvil of human existence, is shaped and is tempered in the intense fire. John preached a hard and excoriating message to those who sought him out in the wilderness. He posed this question to them. Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Luke doesn't describe the motivating force that brought the people into the desert. But John instructs them to bear fruit worthy of repentance. You know, when people are truly repentant, their repentance is reflected in their subsequent behavior. What we have come to call metanoia, which is a change in one's way of life resulting from the penitence and the spiritual conversion. When Father Wesley or I give the absolution at the end of the confession, we often mention amendment of life. 
as one of the outcomes of your confession, that we will hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life. If repentance is more than a perfunctory ritual, and I certainly hope it is, and you are genuinely serious about being sorry, then there's an amendment in your life. I'm struck how in our time, Christian people with huge investments accounts, people who ostensibly have not followed John's guidance, rationalize the acceptability of their excessive wealth as evidence of how much God has blessed them. My response is, no, it isn't. Jesus told a story about a man who went out and built bigger warehouses so that he would have space to store his accumulated wealth. And God called the man a fool and required his soul in death that very day. Bank accounts may actually be evidence of how much God is blessing you, but Scripture tells us that to whom much is given, much is required. It may make you a great American to acquire a lot of wealth. But I've been told that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom. I'm confident that John's admonition to us today would be, give it away. It was certainly Jesus' admonition. So what if we had a John the Baptist-style figure today? A few years ago, there was an essay on the Sojourner's website entitled, quote, These Days We Need a John the Baptist, end quote. The article said this, We need a John the Baptist who will speak prophetically and clearly in the wilderness. We need a John the Baptist who will warn us that judgment is at hand, that God will no longer tolerate the quotidian violence that we deem normal. We need a John the Baptist who will tell us, quote, the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire, end quote. We need a John the Baptist who will name the sins that pervade our relationships and our communities, the injustices that structure a broken world. But we also need a John the Baptist who will point us to the path that God has set before us. John called the inquirers who were curious enough to listen and pay attention. Those who stayed around to hear the message. He called them to ordinary acts of grace according to the author of the Sojourner's article, who, by the way, was Eric Barreto. What would a contemporary John the Baptist be proclaiming today? I suspect that the message would be real similar to the, the original one that occurred in the first century. God's message doesn't change over time. It's the same story as it's always been. John's message introduced the incarnation. St. Paul's message described the ramifications of it. Take St. Paul's exhortation to the Philippians that was read earlier. Notice the similarities to the message that John preached. John was preparing the people for Jesus' incarnation in the flesh, for God becoming man. St. Paul is preparing his readers for the expanses, expansion of Jesus' incarnation 
into their hearts. Like John, his message is about structuring your life. So what does he tell us? First he says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. Today is got a day Sunday, the rose-colored candle. The introit in the Latin mass for today begins, got a day in domino semper, which means rejoice in the Lord always. The words for this introit are taken from St. Paul's admonition in Philippians 4.4. An introit is a psalm or antiphon sung or said as the priest approaches the altar for the Eucharist. Eucharist literally means thanksgiving. And we think of it as the great thanksgiving. St. Paul instructs us to rejoice. That's his first admonition in this lesson to the Philippians. Next, he says, let your reasonableness be known to all. A few weeks ago, Hillary advised us that civility, a close cousin to reasonableness, cannot return until her political party's back in control of the country. Tying civility to doing things her way. I expect to see that in the attitude of two-year-olds, but it's pretty unattractive in the el- pretty unattractive in the elderly. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Do not be anxious about anything. This week, um, I read um, a study on anxiety disorders that said we are approaching a time when 10% of of Americans that walk on God's green earth sometime during their life will suffer from a diagnosable anxiety disorder. That's one in 10. One in 10. Do not be anxious about anything. But by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Communicate with God. Advent is a time when we can do examination of conscience to take a look at the state and the condition of our prayer life. How's yours coming along? What's the nature of your prayers? How frequently are you going about the task of prayer? Are you following the scriptural admonition to pray without ceasing? And what does that mean in the context of your life? If we do these things, St. Paul tells the Philippians that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Next, St. Paul offers this admonition concerning where it's good for us to focus our attention. The kinds of thoughts that we allow to sort of bounce around in our heads and which we entertain to a large degree impact the kind of life that we live. So St. Paul says, focus on these things. Think about these things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If people put that into practice on a regular basis, what do you suppose would happen to those statistics about the frequency of anxiety disorders in our culture? Would they go up or down or remain the same? If you look at the research-based interventions for both anxiety and depression, one of the thing, one of the interventions that quickly comes to the top the, of the creme de la creme is cognitive therapy, which looks at changing how people think about their experience. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. One of the things that you could do this week to prepare for your celebration of the Incarnation is to write that scripture out and post that someplace where every time you look at it, it becomes a reminder of where your head ought to be. As I said, John was quite a dramatic presentation. He got their attention. As far as we know, like Jesus, never wrote a word. And yet, um, we're talking about him 2,000 years later. That's a powerful message. So he got our attention. St. Paul then shapes our hearts and minds with the implications of Christ's incarnation for living a Christ-filled life. John was quick to say, I'm not the one. The one that will come later will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I'm not he. That has happened. St. Paul tells us about what our response to that can now become.